Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politics by Faith. Thanks for being here. We did this TV show on The First TV. You can download The First TV app in the App Store on thefirsttv.com. You can go watch it. Uh, but it's been, it's been very great. It was a we took a lot of the things we've been talking about on the radio show and, and here and brought it into one special about the broken world that we live in right now. And we called it How to Survive a Broken World. So we first identified the problem, hopefully in a clear, coherent way that you can take and, and spread the word with. And then we talked about virtue and talked to Father Robert Sirico, uh, who was great, shared the gospel, and then talked to Gad Sad with some other objective truths in life and then ended with a definition of virtues. Gave some specific, 10, 10 virtues that we can focus on and questions we need to answer in our lives so that we can actually pursue happiness, which, which really means practice virtue. I uh, hope you enjoy. Hey, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Our latest special, Politics by Faith, How to Survive, a broken world. We live in a broken world and a broken culture. It's not going well. Things are so broken, there is now an entire all-encompassing category of death called deaths of despair. Alcoholism, drug overdoses, and suicide. That should be a major warning sign that we are missing the mark when deaths of despair is a term that people know. We can just look at suicide numbers, 50,000 people killed themselves in 2022. It's a record high. I don't know, maybe someone's like, oh, it's not that many. I don't know, record high. How about this fact? Men 75 and older had the highest suicide rate, nearly double the rate of people 15 to 24. That's interesting. That's worth its own analysis. That men, when they reach 75 or older, like what happened in their life that they think it's worth ending it now? Is it regret? What's, what's happening there? And we can touch on that a little later in the show with some of our great guests. We've gotten very good at surviving as human beings. We're good at surviving. People can live a long time. But we're not that great at thriving. So in today's show, we're going to talk about how to not just survive, but how to thrive. One more point before we get into it. We talk about deaths of despair. That's its own thing. But what about life of despair? People living in despair. That's its own problem. 3.7 million kids, 12 to 17, had at least one major depressive episode in the last year. Depressed kids 
Depressed kids? Did you ever hear of such a thing when you were growing up? Dep oh, what's wrong? What's, uh, where's Susie? Oh, she's very depressed. I've never heard of that. What is going on? Why is this? Well, I want to argue. I got three points. I got three. Like the worldview we have today, that we created today, there could be no other way. This, of course, is the natural result of that worldview. So three points to make. The very first point, uh, I would argue that this is the result of the modern worldview that says there are, are three, uh, I should say it like this, there are three fundamental statements that our worldview today makes. There are three fundamental statements. They're all wrong, but most people have grabbed onto them. The first is, who are you to say? The second is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the third is, oh, that's just my truth. These are all wrong. <laughs> Conservatives, on the other hand, should be standing for the good, the beautiful, and the true. John, can you throw that, that slide back up there, please? I wanna I want be able to, to visualize this. Uh, we can't focus, so who are you to say, right? That is the opposite of standing for the good, right? Oh, well, someone will say, you shouldn't do that. Oh, well, who are you to say what's good or bad? We can't focus on beautiful things because we're told, oh, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Here's this hideous art or this monstrosity of a building, and I, and, and I think it's beautiful. It's like, no, that's anti-art. That is not beautiful at all. And we can't focus on objective truth because we're told, oh, well, that's my truth. But that's it. Those are the three like, lies of our, of our day. Who are you to say, beauty's in the eye of the beholder and my truth? And conservatives need to stand for the good, the beautiful, and the true. We need to stand for these things because when people don't, it's a mess. <laughs> and it's reflected in their life and it's reflected in our culture at large. All right, second big point. The state of despair in our country today is the result of not understanding the true nature of man. Most people think that man is born good. So then when something bad happens or when things don't go well or when we get depressed, uh, everyone's all like, how could this be? Right? The reality is man is fallen. Man is dead in sin. Man is blind, cut off from God, deceived, and desperately wicked. Like, gee, Slater, that sounds like a lot. That's, I didn't make it up. That's the biblical view of man. It's in the book. But we don't have a biblical worldview anymore. Most people, even, even Christians, think that man is good. So then when bad things happen, it's like this massive tragedy. Like, oh, how could this possibly? But if you have the correct view of man, then when a bad things happen, you're like, well, yeah, of course the bad thing happened. Man is fallen, dead in sin, blind, cut off from the life of God, deceived and desperately wicked. This brokenness that we have today in our lives, individual lives, and the culture at large, it comes from the fall. <laughs> like literally chapter three of that book up on the screen there. Chapter three explains why we are the way we are. But people don't believe it. Many Christians don't believe it. Our kids certainly aren't taught it in school. Many Christians think we're good. So the problem with this is if you misassess reality, you're going to keep misdiagnosing the problem. And then you're going to keep coming up with the wrong solutions, right? And you're going to look for solutions in all the wrong places. And it's just going to make things way worse. 
And this ties into number three, because if, if you don't know the, the main problem, you're gonna look for the, for, for the wrong solutions. And usually it's like some sort of materialistic answer, right? And that's the third big lie of our culture today, a misidentification of this thing we call the American dream. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. We've been talking a lot about this on my show on SiriusXM, Patriot, this idea of the American dream. We've been told that it's a material thing, that the American dream is uh, making more money than your parents did. And we would frame it as like living a better life than your parents did, but it always had like a money connotation. And sometimes it'd be more specific, like, oh, the American dream is to buy a house. I was like, I just really want to push back on that. I think we can do better than that. That can't be it. The American dream can't be a material thing. You know, it's, there's, a lot of suicides are because of financial problems. Uh, loss of money, loss of a job, and you lose a job and you lose your identity, like who am I anymore? Stuff like that, right? I'd much rather live in a country where the American dream isn't tied to material success or failure, but has to do with virtue. And if money and a good job and a house may come from that, that's great. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's all about how you live your life. I don't want the American dream to be dependent on whether or not the Federal Reserve raises interest rates or not. Like that, that can't be right. And that's what our founding fathers meant when they wrote pursuit of happiness. You have a God-given right to pursue, for your life, your liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Happiness wasn't this fleeting emotion. It was a, a true lasting happiness that came from living a life of virtue. And pursuit meant the habitual practice of. So Thomas Jefferson, just as, he, I mean, just as could have, he did. He, like what he really wrote was, you have the, the right to practice virtue. That's how we need to view. Pursuit of happiness means practice virtue. It doesn't mean YOLO and go and like be happy, like do little as fleeting things that in the short term make you happy. That, why, would, why would Thomas Jefferson write that? It's about practicing virtue, but we don't do that. We, we don't have those concepts even, so we're off. <laughs> by a lot, we're misguided, misaligned by just a mile. And we gotta get it back right. And at the end of the show, we're gonna talk about what virtues exactly. We have 10 virtues, 
and then 10 questions that we need to ask ourselves. 10 virtues, 10 questions. Because if life is about, if happiness is the result of pursuing virtue, okay, great, Slide, I'm with you, but what virtues? And we need to be able to define this because uh, buying a house, I can, I can see it, I can touch it, I can feel it. I know, I know what the world is selling me. The world is tell, selling me things I can grab, things I can hold, things I can buy, things I can do and experience. And then you come here slightly and you say, no, no, that's not the American dream, it's virtue. All right, well, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> what virtues? All right, I got 10 of them. And then 10 questions that we need to ask ourselves. We'll do that coming up at the end of the show. But before those 10, we have two great guests, uh, Reverend uh, Robert Sirico from the Acton Institute and the great Gad Sad. We'll ask some big questions and then we'll get to these 10 virtues at the end of the show. I'm super grateful you're here. Politics by Faith, How to Survive a Broken World. Spread the word. This podcast is brought to you by Patriot Gold Group. Love these guys. Jack, the whole team over there. I, I like, this means a lot. Like they call themselves Patriot Gold Group. I don't know, you sit around, you try to think of the name of your company and they chose Patriot Gold Group for a reason. That's who these people are. Gold, you're, you're working with like-minded people. As we get. Gold is over $2,000 an ounce right now. So we got wars in the Middle East. We got uh, rate cuts coming in an election year, surely. We have uh, similarities to the 70s. Right? In 1979, we had the Iran hostage crisis, war in the Middle East, cities in disarray, stagflation. Gold went from $185 an ounce in 1974 to $850 an ounce in 1980. So it shot through the roof. Might happen again. Patriot Gold Group. You can talk about a no-fee-for-life IRA. Your IRA or 401k can be in physical gold and silver. And you can just don't, or you can just own gold. Just have, and or just have actual physical gold or silver in your possession. Give me a call. 1-888-617-6122. Get a free investor's guide. 888-617-6122. Tell me you know Mike Slater. Consumer Affairs top rated gold IRA dealer seven years in a row. Pretty good. 888-617-6122. PatriotGoldGroup.com. Hey, welcome back to our special Politics by Faith, How to Survive a Broken World. It was a while back, uh, it was actually a, a listener of ours who said, uh, Slater, you're, you're touching on some stuff. You have to talk to Reverend Sirico from the Acton Institute, and uh, he'll blow your mind. So we first talked to him on the radio a while back, and he was the first person that gave me this mindset that freedom is not the end of the story. I think conservative, at least myself, I fell for this like a tra uh, trap where, where, where it's about freedom and then you get freedom and yay, we, that's it. It's like, no, 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 no. Freedom's not the end of the story. Freedom is the very beginning. And ever since then, I've been on quite a, a thought journey to try to make sense of all that and what that really means. And it's an honor to have the Reverend Robert Sirico here with us, co-founder of the Acton Institute, and his book, The Economics of the Parables, is available now as well. Reverend, how are you doing, sir? Great. How are you? Good to be with you. Very good. I'm grateful you're here. So let's start from the very beginning. Do we live in a broken world? Walk out your front door. <laughs> no, no, you don't even have to walk out your front door. Uh, just look into your heart. We're all broken in one way or another. Uh, we have high ambitions for ourselves, and and yet we have the capacity to betray our deepest values. Uh, the human condition itself is broken. Um, somebody once said, "We we don't um, 
we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That there's something uh, in us that is uh, awry. Something's not right. And uh, as somebody else once said, that the man knocking on the brothel door is seeking God. That we, we look very often in the wrong places for that which is the the fulfillment of our existence. So yes, we certainly live in a broken world because individuals are broken, societies are broken, families are broken. But again, that, that's not the end of the story. Uh, that's the context in which we live the reality of our lives. It's hard for people to even accept that reality uh, and to accept the uh, reality of man. And the fallenness yeah. of man, which is interesting. Like, it's, can you speak to that for a minute? Like, why do people want to think that man is good, and and don't even want to accept maybe the brokenness of themselves and of society? Hey, this is Vivek Ramaswamy. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID nineteen, the Trump Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies. Hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe to the Truth Podcast today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, uh, there's, there's this natural resistance um, to the reality of limitation and death because, uh, and then on, on the even deeper moral level, um, you know, our own culpability to things. Um, it's kind of whistling past a graveyard. Uh, you know, it's, as the poet says, it's Margaret we long for, you know, we're mourning for. We're, we're mourning uh, when we see death around us, we're mourning our own mortality. And, uh, the brokenness that we're speaking about now is a part of that mortality. I think it becomes particularly acute when we think we have no remedy or hope or salvation in the midst of that brokenness. Now, as a believer, as a Christian, um, I believe there is uh, a remedy. And it's one who walked through that brokenness, whose own body was broken, and yet whose body rose on the third day. So I'm so glad you said that. I almost did not bring the gospel back into it. And I can't believe I was, that skipped my mind. Uh, but that hope is everything. Uh, the, sort of the genesis of this special, we saw a study done on the uh, suicides, the amount of suicides in America, record high, 50,000 a year. Uh, and then we have a new cat, this category of death called deaths of despair. It's like, oh man. Like, wow, like where are we that that's even a thing? So, but, but just focusing on suicide itself, I don't know if you've done any study on this and what drives people to that. Is it a simple, I don't say simple, but is it hopelessness or what, what else is, is the root of this? No, I think it is. I think that's one of the reasons that despair is considered one of the cardinal sins. Uh, despair is the loss of hope, despair. Uh, it, that's exactly what it means. It's without hope. Um, I forgot that movie. There was some years ago. Uh, was it Robin Williams was in a movie uh, that showed hell, uh, and it wasn't 
the flames of hell, his, his wife went to hell. Uh, and it was her in a dark room by herself with no hope. And I think that's what drives people. I think uh, what COVID did was kind of stick people's nose in the reality of isolation. And if you didn't have any kind of resiliency, uh, what I would say, you know, spirituality, some orientation to the transcendent, that the belief that there's something beyond our physicality, uh, why wouldn't you despair? Uh, I mean, Sartre, you know, <laughs> one of the most depressing philosophers in modern times, it says we're a speck of dust floating on a speck of dust in the midst of a cold and impersonal universe. If that's all we are, well, <laughs> you know, bring out the Manhattans. <laughs> <laughs> that is depressing, no question. So sure. that being said, sir, what, what would you say is God's design for man's life? That is exactly the question. And the exact answer to that, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the simple version of it and then elaborate on it. The exact answer to that version is two words, Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is that Christ reveals man to man. He tells us who we are. He is the explanation of our existence. He is the grounding of our dignity. He experiences everything we experience uh, in our lives, and he redeems it through his passion, through his suffering, so that suffering is not the final word in the Christian vocabulary. It's life that's the final word. And I, I, I say this not just as a kind of pious thought, oh, Jesus Christ is the solution to all of our problems. Though that's true, but that can be very superficial when people um, haven't really entered the agony of the garden or the agony of the cross. Uh, Christ revealed, Christology is anthropology. Anthropology is Christology. The study of man is the study of Christ. And I think that's why he's such a captivating figure throughout 2000 years, is that there's something about him that speaks to our, our grittiness, our limitedness, our uh, brokenness, and that transcends it, that gives us the sense of how to get out of the despair. You spoke of the passion and suffering uh, on the show the other day, we had a, a guy, a roofer, he called it. And he said, uh, I offered my kids these opportunities and other roofers I know to work with. And, uh, and they said, uh, both of his kids said, we don't want to do that. We don't want to work that hard. Uh, it was like an interesting idea that we, another example of how we just so, try so hard to avoid suffering in our lives and avoid yeah. pain. What is that about? Well, you know, it's funny you should mention that because my dad was a roofer. Um, and I remember him coming home uh, in New York. Uh, he'd come home on a hot summer's day and he'd always get in about three o'clock around the time that I would get back from school. And I remember his skin being darkened from the sun and on his arms, uh, he had hair on his arms, clumps of tar. And the first thing he had to do was go to the bathtub. My mother wouldn't let him use the kitchen sink and put this green gooey stuff on and 
and work it off it, it just to get the tar out and and the next thing he would do after he was done with that is just lay down on the couch and and sleep and i saw his fatigue i saw the labor uh, that he underwent and my response to that as, as i'm thinking back now just from from my soul from my memory was not a a disrespect for that but a a, a profound respect for my father because I knew uh, that the meal we were going to have after he got up from his nap uh, was provided by that that labor, by that pain, by that sunburn, by that horrible, greasy stuff he had to remove the tar with. And uh, I think one of the, the problems of prosperity is when it numbs us to the reality of our limitation. We create this illusion around ourselves. Uh, and, you know, it's it's the way so many young people are growing up today. I, I, <laughs> I know I sound like the cranky old man, right? <laughs> I One of too. those Muppet, the Muppet characters, right? Was it Sattler and Hilton? <laughs> Kids these days. <laughs> But it's true, and and uh, I know young people these days who are not like that at all, who who do have a profound respect for the labor, for the the value of labor, and how it cultivates one's spirit, if it's done with a sense of intentionality and purpose and transcendence. Uh, Reverend, we have to run. We got about a minute, but I want to encourage everyone to go listen. Just Google this. You're one of the speeches you gave. I think it's called "Freedom and Virtue." I think that's the title of it. It'll pop up. Uh, what is the connection between these two things? Well, freedom is the context. Freedom is not a virtue. It's the context in which we can be virtuous or the context in which we can be vicious because it just represents our options. And what virtue enables us to do is to concretize and actualize the good the objective good, that which brings about flourishing and a sense of wholeness. And as I say, a sense of transcendence in one's life. So that's the connection between uh, freedom and virtue. Freedom needs to be pointed to something beyond itself. And that is who who defines what virtue is, Reverend? Who's to say what's virtuous and good? I think everybody knows that, you know, it's only first year philosophy students that ask those kinds of questions. You know, (laughs) I I was talking to a professor once um, and he said, yeah, everybody's a a moral relativist until they have a kid who asks for the keys to the car (laughs) and then they're moral absolutists. That's so good. Uh, Reverend Robert Sirico, please go check out the Acton Institute. The Reverend is the the co-founder of and the book is Uh, the economics of the parables. Reverend, always good to talk to you, sir. Thank you so much for your insight. Thanks for having me. Be well. And your wisdom. Thank you. Coming next, the great Gad Sad, Mike Slater, on on, uh, the first TV. Spread the word. Public Square, totally, completely free app for your phone. It is a, a new marketplace. They're becoming more and more of an Amazon where you can do all your shopping inside of one app knowing that you're not dealing with a bunch of uh, like woke activists on one side 
or just a bunch of sellouts and Chinese, whatever. You know what I mean? You're just dealing with good people, good Americans who have the same values that you and I have. That means a lot. Because your money is important. How you spend your money is important. And it's not only now the things you buy. That's what it used to be for a long time. Like, um, you know, but, but that, if, you just, if it's just what you buy, then these companies can go sell out in China and uh, that's it. At least I got the thing. But it's about way more than that now. But who we're doing business with. And only certain people are allowed to sell products or services inside of this app, Public Square. They have to agree to five major principles, major conservative principles in order to do business. So you know that you can trust whoever you're working with here. PublicSQ.com, you can read those five principles and learn all about the app. Uh, but just download it, use it. Click near me and start Start with a coffee shop, a local coffee shop, a real local, not Starbucks, but a real local coffee shop owned by conservatives and spend your money wisely there. Start with there and then you'll use more and more of the app because it's wonderful. PublicSQ.com or Public Square in the App Store. Welcome back to our special Politics by Faith, How to Survive a Broken World. I want to go right to our good friend Gad Sad. Of course, you have to listen to his podcast, uh, The Sad Truth. And then also his book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. His follow-up to the wonderful book, The Parasitic Mind, which you also have to buy as well. Unfortunately, I think about cat urine way too often. And that reference only (laughs) makes sense if you read his previous book. Mr. Sad, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, apologies if I cough in your viewers' ears. Uh, it's because I've been suffering from a really nasty cold. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. We're all powering through it, <laughs> sir. Uh, how, we got to start from the beginning. I think we need to define our terms. How do you define happiness? Right. Uh, great first question. Uh, it, so it's, let's use a, a framework of dopamine versus serotonin, right? Dopamine is the short-term pleasure calculus, if you'd like, right? I just had a great juicy burger. Uh, You know, I just had a fun conversation with someone. So I get that dopamine hit. hit, And so therefore, quote, I'm happy. That's not how I'm using the term in the context of my book. Uh, I'm talking about, if you like, serotonin, which is contentment. If you're sitting on the proverbial uh, porch when you're 85 with your spouse and you look back at your life and say, my God, I've had a great marriage. I've had a great profession, raised great kids, had a meaningful group of friends that have always been there for me. Uh, I've had a, a, a job that's given me purpose and meaning. So it's in that sense that I'm defining happiness. It's an existential glee, if you'd like. Mm, okay, that's very good. Uh, you write in your book that, or you quoted someone who said uh, that it's, it's self-evident and I've never loved the term, this idea of something that's self-evident. I almost think it's like a cop-out. But I don't know. Talk, talk me off that ledge. Like, what, what are we to do with that? Because, and I'll say this, because you listed some things that are great, I think, are great. The sitting on your porch with your wife when you're 85, looking back at a life well-lived. But someone's going to say, oh, well, who are you to say that that is good? Right. <coughs> Forgive me. Uh, sorry for the cough. Uh, well, that really, so there are, you, you, your point is well taken in that there are, of course, individual differences in what is the most direct path for happiness. And so my path may be somewhat different from your path in terms of climbing, you know, to summiting to Mount Happiness. And there are also cross-cultural differences in how we define happiness. But underneath these differences, whether they be individual or cultural differences, there is a bedrock of 
foundational metrics that define how one is happy, right? So, I mean, very few people are going to be happy if they're in a miserable uh, relationship and a miserable marriage. Very few people are going to be happy if their jobs, which they go to eight, 10 hours every day, is the bane of their existence. It's nothing but drudgery. So yes, there are some elements that we can debate whether those elements constitute a pathway to happiness, but there are some other ones that are incontrovertible. And there is certainly a lot of research that shows that uh, if you ask people their number one goal in life, they usually answer to be happy. Hmm. We talked on my radio show about the, term, the Greek word eudaimonia, which is like yes. this idea of like a full life. But in your book, you talk about this other Greek word I've never heard before. Is it anoraxia? Is that the word? Yes, yes, yes. Well, by the way, so to your point, uh, you know, I, the, the book is a melange of, you know, my personal trajectory of happiness coupled with ancient wisdoms, hence here come the ancient Greeks, and then coupled with backed up by contemporary science. And, you know, it's amazing. And, I, and I'll, I'll talk about ataraxia in a second. Yeah. But... Uh, I tell the story in the book of uh, once having a chat with a, a fellow Lebanese author, Nassim Talib, where he was kind of ribbing on me and saying, I don't know what you study in psychology and behavioral science, Gad, because everything that there is to, to know about human nature, the ancient Greeks already covered it. And so, you know, I laughed, I chuckled along. And then many, many years later, as I was doing all my research for this book, and I did a deep dive into, you know, the Stoics and Aristotle and Seneca and Epictetus and the rest of the gang, I said, you know, I think Nassim Talib might be right. Every time I came up with what <laughs> Brilliant insight. Some guy had already said it 2,000 years ago, but to, to your point about ataraxia, it means tranquility of mind, right? And so, I, and I discuss it in the context, in one of the chapters, I talk about regret. You know, how could you live? I mean, a part of living a good life is to be sitting on that proverbial porch when you're 85 with your spouse and having very few looming regrets. And so it's in that context that I introduced that beautiful term ataraxia. Yeah, we, we mentioned in the first time we played, we put up some charts of uh, suicide. So 50,000 people a year commit suicide. But the rate of suicide among those 75 and older is twice as high as 15 to 24. Now, 15, 15 to 18 is like pretty young, to, to, but so that may bring their average down. But still, like 75 plus is the number one group that commits suicide. I wonder. So I don't know, just as, as a behavioral psychologist, like, do you have any thoughts on suicide? Have you studied this? Have you thought about this? And what do you think about the fact that 75-year-olds and older are the number one group doing it? I, you just I mentioned regret, and that just popped in my head. Right. No, I didn't know that specific. Um, it surprised me that it's the 75-plus. But to your, to your yeah. question, to your direct question, I actually uh, published a paper, I think it was in 2007, in a medical journal where I looked at uh, the relationship between suicides uh, so if you look at globally, the ratio of male to female suicides is three to one, meaning three times more men commit suicide than women. Now, what I wanted to demonstrate in this paper is, are there ecological cross-cultural variables that might make that ratio even more pronounced, five to one or less pronounced, two to one? And my argument was, and I, I tested it, I, I did a statistical analysis where I, I demonstrated that to be true. I argued that whenever you have an environment that attacks men's social status, that accelerates their rate of suicide. In other words, men and women 
have different triggers for suicide. So men are much more likely to commit suicide if they have a devastating loss in social status. Women have other reasons why they might view suicide as a viable option. And so to your point, I've actually published a paper in a medical journal on sex-specific issues relating to suicide. Okay, interesting. I wonder if, is that why, when I think older people, older men committing suicide, I think maybe like a, like the stereotypical thing in my mind, I don't know if it's true, it would be like epic loss of a job and, yeah. and therefore money and identity. Well, yeah, the, the point, Look, evolutionary psychology, which is you know my main area of, of research, basically argues that there are many things that you wouldn't expect men and women to exhibit any differences on, right? Both men and women are just as likely to love a juicy burger because from an evolutionary perspective, we both face the same challenges of caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty. But on other on other issues, you expect to be clear sex differences in ways that would be predicted from evolutionary psychology. So regarding suicide, we expect that some triggers of suicide might be identical in men and women, but other triggers of suicide are going to be a lot more assorting on men or on women. And so back to to the earlier point, when it comes to social status, to the extent that we know that around the world, when you ask men and women, what are the attributes that you are most likely to desire in a ideal mate, women are much more likely to state that a man's social status is important to them. Now, different cultures will measure social status differently. In one culture, it might be whether I have an Ivy League degree. In another culture, it might be how many cattle head I own. But there is no culture where women say, give me an apathetic, lazy guy who's in his uh, boxers all day playing video games. That's sexy. I really want to mate with him. And so it's not surprising (laughs) that when men have a devastating loss of social status, take, for example, the, the, the rogue investor who uses all the money, bets it and loses it. Well, you better keep you better put that guy on suicide watch. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, last question again, because uh, I think our culture is way, way off on this. Does money lead to happiness? It, it it does up to a certain point, and then there's an inflection point. So, and I actually discussed this in the book. So, <clears throat> excuse me. The typical study has shown that up to about seventy-five thousand dollars. We may need to adjust that now because of the devastating inflation. But the typical study has been that up to seventy-five thousand dollars more money is good because it allows me to get to my basic needs, right? I want to make sure that I have enough food for me and my family. I want to be able to pay the mortgage. But beyond that, in other words, Elon Musk is not infinitely happier than you, Mike, simply because he's worth $2 billion and you're worth less than 200 billion, right? And so up to a point, money is good. Beyond that point, it, it carries very little weight. That's amazing truth. Also, that hamburger tastes just as juicy and delicious to me as it does Elon Musk. It's not 2 billion times more delicious, which is interesting. Indeed. Uh, The Sad Truth. Go listen to Gad Sad, of course, and his newest book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. And then while you're there, just pick up the other one about uh, the parasitic mind. Gad, always good to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Feel better. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. I'm grateful for you. Coming up next, we'll wrap up this conversation with the American dream and redefining it. I don't say redefining it because we're going to go back to the guy who coined the term. So we're going to go back to uh, the, the, the root, the true beginnings of the American dream. Embrace it again. That's next 
right here on the first TV. Spread the word. And hey, welcome back to our special Politics by Faith, How to Survive a Broken World. So the Wall Street Journal had a poll. The question was, does the American dream still hold true? Yeah, well, the first question is, what is the American dream? They defined it as that if you work hard, you'll get ahead. Only 36% of people said yes. 64% said no. Wow, okay. <laughs> I wonder if people really know what they were answering. I, th I think most people think the American dream is something material and like economic. So I think what they were really answering was how's the economy? Is the economy good or bad? I'm like, the bad. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about this on my SiriusXM show uh, on Patriot, uh, the morning show, about the, what is the American dream? And a lot of people say the American dream is whatever you want it to be, freedom, as we were talking with the Reverend a moment ago. And I'm just not, that's uh, not it. It's got to be more than that. And people say, oh, it's that your kid's life is better than yours. And that's good. But what does better mean? Who defines what better? Do you mean richer? That's it? Money? It's back to money again? Oh, the American Dream Slater is to own a home. Again, money? And we could see you know, where, where that policy effort led us with the housing collapse in 2007. But I can't have the, federal, I, I can't have the American Dream dependent on the Federal Reserve setting interest rates. Like, that's not good. Like, that's not a good dream. It's got to be more than material. One of my all-time favorite stories, I know we've shared it here before. Uh, please read the book Road to Dawn, the story of Josiah Hansen. Um, Henson, excuse me, Josiah Henson. Uh, he was a slave, the inspiration for Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is the book that sparked the Civil War. So very short, and I hate even telling this story so quickly because it doesn't do justice at all. But after 41 years of torture and deep betrayal, he uh, finally was able to escape. And it was him, his wife, and his two youngest kids. They hiked 600 miles at night to the border of Canada, to Lake Erie. And he carried his two children on his back for 600 miles. And he got to the shore of Lake Erie and he had to get across. So he had to trust that ferry captain right there. Right, there's a chance that if he said, hey, I got to get across, he'd be like, oh, I'm going to report you. And then he's captured again at the end of his life. But he had to take the risk. So he asked this man, he's a Scottish man, if he would sail him across. And he said, yes. They finally got across. And as they're getting off the boat, the man said to Josiah, be a good fellow, won't you? And Josiah responded, yes, I will. I will use my freedom well. People say the American dream is freedom. I would say it's using your freedom well. Okay, Slater, finally, great story. What does well mean? It's not about money. It's about virtue. Well, let's go back to the beginning. So the guy who coined the term, he was an historian. His name was James Truslow Adams in 1931. He wrote a book called Epic of America. This is the quote that everyone quotes from that book. Where again, he's the guy who coined the term, the American dream. So let's go to him. He says, life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstances of birth. Okay, that's what everyone quotes because that's the money part. Everything should be richer for everyone. Okay, what they don't quote is the next sentence. The next sentence is, it is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely but a dream of social order 
in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. So for you as a person, he went on to say that the, the American dream is about uh, the, the spiritual values. And it's about a struggle. Uh, our struggle is that to make a living, we were neglecting to live. So you see, like that last quote, the rest of that quote there is about virtue. It's about living your life in such a way that. Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to his daughter. Uh, and the advice was how to avoid the poison of hopelessness. And he said, uh, Thomas Jefferson says that developing daily those principles of virtue and goodness, which will make you valuable to others and happy in yourself. Virtue, daily. All right, again, this is Thomas, this is the guy who wrote Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness. As we talked about in the first segment, Pursuit of Happiness really meant practice of virtue. And here he is giving that same advice to his daughter. Develop daily those principles of virtue and goodness will make you valuable to others and happy in yourself. Health, learning, and virtue will ensure your happiness. They will give you a quiet conscience, private esteem, and public honor, which is what the guy who coined the term as well uh, was talking about, this public honor, because you're a virtuous person. John Adams said, all sober inquirers after truth, ancient and modern, pagan and Christian, have declared that the happiness of man, as well as his dignity, consists in virtue. That is what the American dream is all about. So how do we thrive? How do we not just live, but how do we thrive? By practicing virtue. Okay, so well, what virtues? You keep saying virtue, but what virtues? I got 10 for you. Arthur Brooks. Uh, he wrote a great book called The Conservative Heart many years ago. He's now at Harvard. He studies happiness. Um, every once in a while, he'll come out with some really good stuff. So this is uh, Aristotle. Ten virtues from Aristotle that will make you happy. The first is courage. Number two, temperance. Temperance is self-control in the face of uh, your appetites and base impulses, right? So the motto, the, the, the hippie motto today is, if it feels good, do it. And that is just a recipe for misery, right? Instead, we want tempers, we want self-control. There's another one. Uh, generosity, you need to be generous. Aristotle used the term uh, that we translate today as magnificence. Uh, I, I change it to excellence. We believe in, we need excellence. You wanna live a virtuous life? You have to do things excellently. I was just having this talk with my seven-year-old the other day. Uh, he tries to get away with many things doing the bare minimum. It's like, no, no, son. We stand for excellence in this family. A job well done. What's the old expression? Right? Anything worth doing is worth doing well. Excellence. Uh, number five, greatness of soul. These are the virtues that will lead to happiness. This is the practicing of virtue. What virtues? Here they are. They're on the screen. Courage, self-control, generosity, excellence, greatness of soul. Uh, it means um, not preoccupied by trivial things. Uh, instead, you're focusing on uh, the, the deeper, more significant, more meaningful things in life and not just the, 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 the pettiness, right? greatness of soul. Number six, gentleness. Uh, controlling your temper. If you lose your temper, you lose everything. Number seven, truthfulness. You stand for the truth. 
allow to know truth about yourself as well. Self-awareness. This is a great one. Equity. Equity. What does this mean? It, it meant, back in the day, the opposite of what we think it, of, of what we say it is today. So someone, uh, the equitable man is one who does not, the quote goes, the equitable man is, this is an ancient philosopher, is the one who by choice and habit does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. Okay, so we've flipped it around. So the word really means you're content with not getting what you think you deserve. And equity today means getting what you don't deserve. Right? So today is, oh, these people aren't getting what they don't deserve. So we need to make things equitable and lift them up and give them things they don't deserve. Now we have equity. The original virtue of equity meant you may deserve much more by law or by right, but you're content with not having it. Number nine is forgiveness. And number 10 is modesty, which is not just about clothes, but about refraining from all shameful behavior. So there it is. If you want to live a life of virtue, there it is. So let's go through these, let's go through these 10 again, but by, uh, with a statement to each of them. If you want to live a life of virtue, you need to name your fears and face them. That's the courage. You need to know your appetites and control them. Self-control. You need to be not a cheapskate nor a spendthrift. You need to be generous. Good with money and generous. Number four, give as generously as you can. Number five, focus more on the transcendent. Number six, true strength is a controlled temper. Number seven, never lie, especially to yourself. Number eight, stop struggling for your fair share. Number nine, forgive others. And number 10, define your morality and live up to it all the time. We have the freedom in this country for now, but we have that freedom. Great. It's not enough. That's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. The real question is, are we using our freedom well? Politics by Faith, How to Survive a Broken World. Mike Slater, First TV, Spread the Word. 